All right, good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. Man, it's one of those mornings where God's Spirit's just moving, people really into the worship. Didn't they do a great job leading us this morning? They did a great job, but man, like literally, I could have done that for the next hour and I'd have been okay. Like we're having church. I love seeing the way the church responded. Uh, I was so excited uh, just, just to be able to be here. Obviously, today we, we do something as a church that uh, we kind of pause as part of the service, but also as a country, we pause and reflect this weekend on the sacrifice of those who've gone on before us to preserve the freedoms that we have today. Uh, the, the very idea that we can gather together in a church, there are lots of parts of the world where they can't gather like this and to talk about Jesus, and it's because of the sacrifice of countless men and women who've gone on before us to pay that ultimate price for us to have those freedoms. We pause and celebrate that, but we also pause to realize that for most of us, especially living in Florida, this is like the unofficial beginning of summer. Like, we're excited about that. Uh, some teachers are already done. The students are already done. Yes, <laughs> she's celebrating. She's like, school's out for the summer. Uh, some still have a couple of days left this week, but, but for the most part, summer is here. And what that means here around Ridgepoint Church is we have a number of activities uh, that are planned. There are special summer activities. We kind of chill and, and, and say, hey, let's focus on some of these things. And the first one is coming up right around the corner. Camp RPC is a little bit away. We'll talk about that a lot in the coming weeks. Uh, but right around the corner, we have an event for our students, Ridgepoint students. Uh, we've been kind of meeting and retooling what that's going to look like. And coming up Saturday, June 8th, if you know a middle school or high school student, if you are a middle school or high school student, Saturday, June 8th, we're going to have a pool party at the Matthews House. Uh, so if you know a middle school or high school student, let them know we have that coming up on June 8th. And then the following day, June 9th, we're launching our new Ridgepoint students groups. Middle school group will meet here on campus at 930 before this service. And then high school actually meet at Debbie Prince's house on Sunday nights. If you have any questions about the pool party or about the Ridgepoint student groups, see either Jenny Matthews or Greg Dumkey over on this side. They'd love to share more information. If you're not sure who they are, get someone with guest services. They'll point them out. But we're really excited about that as we get into the summer. There's a lot of exciting things that are taking place. I want to ask you again because I want some interaction this morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. We're glad to hear. Turn to the person next to you. Give them the fist bump and say, I'm glad you're here this morning. Man, I'm excited about being able to continue to wrap up this series, but if you've been sticking with us, this is one series in a series of series where we're looking at the book of Philippians. The first series of this is this one we've called Imprisoned and Free, and it's about chapter one, and we've talked about this, if you haven't been with us, just to get us caught up a little bit. The Apostle Paul is writing uh, this letter to a church that he visited some 12 years earlier, and he helped plant this church, and he did this a lot. He would travel from city to city, and he helped get a church up and, and, and running, and he'd provide leadership there, and then he'd go on to the next church, and then and sometimes he'd hear a report, and sometimes the reports weren't good. And he'd hear a report, and he'd write back and say, hey, I have to correct a teaching or, or correct a practice that's taking place in this church. For the most part, that's not what Philippians is. Philippians is just a short letter but Paul's writing this from prison, probably in Rome, 12 years after he'd visited Philippi. And he's writing this more as just an expression of, man, I want to thank you as a church for the way you've kind of rallied behind the vision. Where a lot of the other letters he wrote to these churches were specific instruction about some, some error or some false practice. Here he's saying, man, I just want to thank you for your support, for what you're doing, and for the way you carry on the gospel. And it isn't that he doesn't give some instruction. In fact, what we're going to get today is the beginning of that instruction. He does that, but at the outset, he's saying, I, I, I want to let you know how much I appreciate you as a church because a lot of the things that we tried to get started 
you guys are actually fulfilling that calling. So that's really what Philippians is. And yet, as Paul writes, he says, I, I want to let you know that there's something about the way the, the world is, is conducted, the way that we kind of are wired as human beings, that we have a tendency to chase after the wrong things. And he says he's discovering it as, that as he's imprisoned, where we would think this would be a place where if, if that was you and I, we'd complain and, and we'd grumble and say, why, I was trying to do the right thing, and now I found myself in jail. Paul says, actually, while I'm imprisoned, I'm discovering what it's like to really be free. And he uses these terms throughout this, this book, where he uses these terms that are almost dichotomous terms, meaning they're, they're opposite terms, saying you think life is one way, but it's actually the other. We talked about last week that he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And for most of us living, especially in modern day United States, where we have a lot of resources at our fingertips, we have a lot of stuff at our disposal, we've been living as if for me to live is gain. That as long as I'm, I'm, I'm living, as long as I'm pursuing the things that I think I want to pursue, that I'm going to find joy, I'm going to find satisfaction, and I'm going to find my value. And that's why you and I, we have a tendency to do this. We have a tendency to, uh, if, if we're coming to church, maybe we've decided we're following Jesus, and we say we have Jesus, but if, but if I just had this thing in my life, and for every one of us that thing might be different, and it might change from season to season. But if I just had this thing in my life, my life would have a greater value, it would have greater worth, and I, ha I would have a better identity about myself. And, and it might be a relationship. If I just had this person in my life, it might be an object. If I just had this vehicle, if I just had this house, if, if my yard just looked like their yard, it would bring some measure of satisfaction. And so what the world does is the world kind of dangles this in front of us, and it says, hey, here's what you think that you want, and we pursue those things as if those things are going to bring all of that, the worth and the satisfaction, and, and they're going to fulfill this longing inside of us. And the world dangles those things, we pursue those things, and then once we get them, we realize, man, it still didn't bring satisfaction. It still didn't bring any value to my life. And, and, and we, we arrive at a point where we're like, well, that wasn't enough, but maybe it's the next thing. Maybe it was this was a stepping stone, what really is going to bring satisfaction. And we keep on this pursuit. And in the meantime, it's like an illusionist that's playing with us. He's dangling this thing in front of you saying, we're going to focus on this. And meanwhile, the world is robbing our joy and our satisfaction and the things that we really want out of life. We think we want one thing when actually we want another. And so Paul is saying this to the church. He's saying, listen, church, for me to live is Christ. I have a purpose. I have a calling upon my life. For me to live is Christ, but when I die, that's when I gain. And he says, here's what life is really about. And so we've kind of spent a couple of weeks, the first three weeks, going into an introduction into this. But what we pick up today in verse 27 is the first real instruction that Paul gives to the church. He's saying, okay, now it's, it's the same thing. If, if we call or if, if we're having coffee with someone, for the first part of the conversation, we're just getting caught up a little bit. We're saying, hey, this is what's going on in life. And, and through that, there's some things that we can learn. But with verse 27, Paul starts to get to the substance of this is why I'm writing. And so we're going to read verses 27 to the end of the chapter 1 as we look at wrapping up Philippians chapter 1. What we've done throughout this series is we've read the entire paragraph that we're reading. 
and then we'll go back and comment on it. So we'll go ahead and read the whole thing, then I'll come back and mention a couple of things about this. But Paul, writing to the church, says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, remember he said, Paul had been saying, I want to come see you. I think eventually I'm going to be freed, and if I'm freed, I'm going to come see you. So he says, whether I come see you or whether I'm absent, that I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is writing to the church saying, I want this to be an encouragement, but as this is an encouragement to you, I want to give you the first word of instruction. And verse 27 begins with this statement. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want us to understand because for Paul, this would have been groundbreaking for the way that he conducted his life almost up until this point. You see, prior to having this experience of actually encountering Jesus, Paul was one who was against the gospel. He was against Christianity. He was against this whole Jesus movement, the movers of this way that had kind of sprung up. Because in Paul's mind, everything about his life had been carefully orchestrated from the time that he was born. He was, what we're going to read later on in Philippians, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a leader of this, this Hebrew movement. And the thing that he'd been instructed at from the time that he was young was that your faith is going to rest upon how good you are as a person. And so Paul's whole life had been orchestrated in a way that it was, it was meant to show that you keep doing good, and if you do enough good in your life, that you're going to be justified in things that you do, that, that people are going to respect you, and, and that ultimately, because of the good that you do, you're going to discover your self-worth. Now watch this. This is totally against what Jesus set out to do. But here's just my observation is that a lot of times, even in Christian circles today, we get so far away from what Jesus actually taught that we teach some of the same ideas, or at least what people catch is some of the same ideas, that being a Christian is about doing these things, and if we, just, if we go to church and we read our Bible and we pray, and, and in those things we're going to discover our worth, and, and Jesus says that wasn't the point at all. The point wasn't that we're going to be set apart because of the things that we do, but because of what he already completed for us. And so Paul says, I want us to get this right because there are some people, Paul says, man, here's the gospel. Here's what I'm trying to teach. And there's some people over here that are teaching it's all about the good works that you do. And on the other side, there's people over here that said, man, I discovered freedom in Jesus. And now because I discovered freedom in Jesus, I can go and do whatever I want. I can live my own way, I can do my own thing. And Paul says, neither one of these extremes is beneficial, nor is it healthy. Paul says, our faith isn't based upon the things that we do. Our faith is based upon what Jesus did. And that's the heart of the gospel. It's all about what Jesus did for us. But once we have and taste of that freedom, then he says this. Only let your manner of life, in other places he says, the way that you walk, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So for Paul, this would have flown directly in the face of everything that he knew growing up. 
And I ask the question as I look at a text like this because for Paul, this would have been so ingrained in, in just who he was that Paul, from the time that you're young, you were circumcised on the eighth day. You did the things you weren't, you did, you're supposed to do. You didn't do the things you weren't supposed to do. You, you ate the foods you were allowed to. You didn't eat the foods you weren't allowed to. Paul, everything that you've been doing has been orchestrated to prove that what you do determines your worth. And Paul comes and says, I've discovered now that it's not based upon the good that I do, but on what Jesus already did. And because I've tasted and I've seen that, because I know that now my instruction to the church is this, let your manner of life, the way that you do life, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't think you can do it all yourself and rely upon your works. But also don't use that as an excuse to go and live the way that you want. But rather, now that you've tasted of the goodness of the gospel, let the manner of way that you do life be worthy of the gospel. Now, here's the thing. Practically speaking, like that sounds really good. But my question right away, because I think anybody who's ever sat down to lead a, a small group or anybody who ever has ever taught on, on a platform teaching about who Jesus is, we, we want to say, well, that sounds like a good idea. I think for every one of us, we should do that thing that we should let our lives, that we should walk in a way that brings glory to the gospel and that we, that we have that understanding. I think that most of us would teach that and believe that, and that sounds good. But the question I have to ask is, okay, but how do you do that? Like, what does that look like? I think anybody who's ever led even that small group has said, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to live my life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. But what does that look like? Paul goes on, and I really want us to focus on this this morning. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, he says, I want to come see you, but whether or not that ever really happens, I want to hear of you. I want your testimony to be such that you're standing firm. But then he says this, watch these words that we've highlighted, that I may hear of you that you're standing firm, read these words with me, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Read that with me again. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When you read the words that are highlighted in yellow, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you read just those words? For me, the idea is that they're words of unity. That we're in this together. Paul's writing, he says, I want you to have one spirit, I want you to be of one mind, and I want you striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul knew people, in fact, he writes to the church that's in Rome in a letter that we call the Romans, and he writes, and they had a boldness about their faith, but they didn't have a unity. And so Paul says, I want you to stand firm in your faith, but as you stand firm in your faith, there's something about that that we should be striving together in unity. There were churches that got the boldness and the standing firm right, but there wasn't necessarily this unity. I started reading this, and, and this week, as, as I kind of was going through, God, what, what, what does this mean for us as a church? Like, as we read this passage, as we walk through Philippians at this rather brisk pace, what does this mean for us? Because we're supposed to do this as well. Paul writes to the church then, but he's writing just as much to us today. What does that look like? And I started praying about this both on a micro level here at Ridgepoint Church, but then also on a macro level. What does that look like? 
And so I want to have, I need actually a couple of people to help me out with, with kind of sharing what this can look like. As on a micro level first, I'll talk about macro a little bit later. But on a micro level, I need, I need some people who are current volunteers at Ridgepoint Church in some specific areas. Uh, I need one person. I need one person from each area. I know it's kind of bold coming up on stage. Uh, and so our, our kind of frontline people, our guest service people, I need one guest service volunteer to join me up on stage. Everyone's, all right, there we go. <laughs> all the other guest service volunteers are like, yes, way to step up. <laughs> Everyone else, like their heart was pounding in their chest. Way to step up, man. I need someone who's normally up on the stage anyway, someone from the band. It doesn't mean you have to be volunteering today, but someone from the band come join me up on stage. Good job, good job, sir. Um, I need someone from the booth. If you're a booth volunteer, whether you're serving today or not, come on up here. Brooke is making way up here. Way to be bold, Brooke. I like it. I need someone from... Uh, if there's a kids worker in here who isn't serving over in our kids area, if you serve on another week, I need you up here as well. A kids worker. <laughs> Mike, your wife was kind of nudging you to go there. <laughs> you had to go. If you guys could start to take this, and, and we're going to make a circle out of this as best we can. I need one of our new youth workers to come up on stage. One of our new youth workers to come up on stage. You, you might not want to step on the front of the stage there. I'm just, I'm just warning you there. <laughs> um, all right, go ahead and take the other side. We have a number of other people that serve in, in different areas within the church. This is a small microcosm. But for the purpose of this illustration, this, this rope, and in particular the area in the rope, is, is depicting our vision as a church. We exist as a church to lead all people in a growing relationship with Jesus. But we do that by being a church unchurched people love to attend. And our volunteers, your job in volunteers, as volunteers is to carry that mission into your individual areas. And so in some way, maybe in different levels, but in some way, people who volunteer say, I believe in the vision. I want to carry that mission out to our specific area. And that's the goal of volunteers. They get plugged in. The church couldn't exist without volunteers. And so I want to use you guys as an illustration on the count of three. I want each of you, until I say to stop, each of you to start to, 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 to pull on the rope as this is our vision. I'll pull until I say stop. Ready? One, two, three. All right, stop. <laughs> okay, you kind of stand over there for a second, and I'll share in a second. We're going to continue on, but slide over a little bit. And let me share why. There's a perfect illustration of what often happens within the church. I gave very little instruction as to what they're going to do. At first, they were kind of tentative. They were confused because they weren't sure. They said, man, we agree upon this part of it. We agree upon the vision, but we're not sure. And JJ didn't really give us a lot of instruction about how we're supposed to pull and how hard we're supposed to pull. And what happens is each one of them, even though they agreed upon what was in the center, they pulled in their general direction. And because of that, there was little progress. Now, if we had some people up here who were really, really competitive, there might have been one who was stronger than the other, and they might have pulled the others with them, and there might have been a small amount of progress, but it was stagnated progress at best. Because even though they agreed upon the vision, they pulled specifically into their area. Now, I didn't tell them to do that, but naturally, that's what we have a tendency to do. And if we pull in our own area, we have a tendency to stagnate our progress. 
But if I take this team right here, this team of leaders, and I say, I want you guys to pull together and to walk the rope to the back of the church. Go ahead and do that. Now, because they're working in unity, that isn't a challenge. If they're all pulling in individual areas and, and they start to, to pull and one of them wants to pull to the back of the church, they might eventually get there, but it's going to take some time. But as long as there's unity behind the vision, there's progress. Okay, you guys can come on and make your way back. As long as there's unity towards the, the overall vision, there's progress. But we have a tendency within churches in general for our progress to be stagnated because even though we believe in the vision, we pull in our own individual areas. Thank you guys so much. I can take the rope. Everybody give it up for our volunteers. You guys proved that illustration in an invaluable way. We have a tendency to pull in our own direction. And as we pull in the individual direction, especially when it comes to the micro level, we have a tendency to stagnate the vision because we focus on our individual areas, our individual silos, and we stagnate the vision. Vision without unity is never accomplished. I want you to get that. Vision without unity is never accomplished. We can have a ton of vision. If people aren't cohesive around the vision, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And unity without vision is never productive. If everyone's together and we love each other, but we don't know where we're going, we're never going to have any progress. They were over here, and, and they're kind of, over here, there's some tension over here. They're kind of laughing and joking a little bit. And there's unity, but there still wasn't any progress until we said, hey, we want you to walk to the back of the room. But unity plus vision equals progress. When we have unity and we have vision, when we have vision and we have unity, when we have those two things, that's where there starts to be progress. And so Paul's writing to the church, and he's, he's saying, go ahead and put that verse back up there. He's saying as he's writing to the church that I want you to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying I want there to be vision, but I also want there to be unity. And that happens on a micro level. If we miss out on vision, if we miss out on unity, there's not progress. But it also happens on a macro level, on, on a much bigger scale. You see, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and was the, often the case was, as the message of Jesus started to spread, they didn't have big, huge churches like we have today in the United States. They had these small house churches that would meet. And often there might have only been a couple in each city. It isn't like today I could go outside and walk out on, on the steps of Ridgepoint Church and I could throw a baseball and probably hit five churches. Like right in the immediate vicinity of our area, there are churches all around us. There are probably dozens if not hundreds in the Auburndale Winter Haven area. Paul's writing in time when all he had was a micro level. There wasn't a macro level of churches spread out across the country like we have today. But I think there's a macro application. And this is where for us the rubber has to start to meet the road. Because on a micro level we realize that even though we have people serving in different capacities. We had some of our volunteers up here. We could have had group leaders. We could have had trustees and elders and people serving in the community and all these different things that we do. There could have been a lot of volunteers up here and we would have all pulled in our own direction. But when there's unity behind the vision we start to attain progress. And the same thing is true on a macro level. When we look at other churches in our area, 
We say, man, because sometimes I think that in the, in the church world, we have a tendency to say, man, we want to see our church grow, and we do. I don't think, don't think there's anything wrong with that. But then the danger of that is we can start to view the other people around us as competitors rather than our teammates. And we pull in opposite directions. And so as I was kind of preparing for this, God kind of was downloading this in, in, in who I am as, as a leader, as a, as a pastor, that, man, we have to pray and support the churches that are around us. And so I want to give us a specific walking away from here. This is our challenge that I want us to focus on this week. Because, man, doing, doing ministry and doing, doing life as, as leaders within the church, that can be really, really difficult. Are we good? I feel like I hit it or something. All right, we'll try again. Um, so, you know, the, the leadership of these churches, man, I, I know what that struggle is like. And so this week I said, man, I, I want to make a pointed effort on our part as a church to pray for, and for each one of us individually to find five churches to pray for. If you know pastors within those churches, to send a message to them and say, hey, I know the challenge you're, that you're going through, and I will let you know that as a church, as an individual this week, I prayed for you. As I was preparing for this this message, I, I said, man, I want to do this myself before I start to, to vision cast this as a church. And so I started to, to take a, a survey on the churches in the area and some of the people that I knew as pastors. And, and, and throughout the week, I started writing down some of those names of the people. And, and I wrote down a couple more than five. And I started kind of writing down the people that I want to send just an encouraging text message to. And at the end of this week, Thursday and Friday, I started sending texts out to, to those pastors that, that I knew. And I said, hey, guys, I'm preaching through Philippians 1. It says we're supposed to be of one mind and one spirit striving together for the gospel. And sometimes we get that wrong. And so I just want to let you know that as, as pastor this week, I prayed for you by name, that God would work in you and that God would work through you, that he would accomplish big things. And the thing is that I started getting responses back from those pastors. Just, man, that, that blew me away. Like, thanks so much. I needed that word of encouragement right now. That as, as believers, those who follow Jesus, we should be encouraging each other and, and, and equipping each other rather than thinking of the other churches down the corner as our competition or our, our challengers. Because ultimately, our goal as a church and as a team of churches is to reach this world with this incredible message that, Jesus, that God loves you, that Jesus died for you, and that it's through Jesus we can find redemption. And so I want to challenge you to do this this week. Our walking wave points, as, as we already leave here this morning, is to do this. Find five churches that you're familiar with, or maybe you're not familiar. Go through the phone book. I guess we don't have phone books anymore, but go through Google and find some churches in, in Winter Haven and in Auburndale and, and, and send a message to either the email address or in some way just say, hey, as a church, I just want to let you know we're praying for you, and if there's anything specific, I can pray for. And here's the thing. I sent it out to one of the pastors in our area. I said, hey, I'm praying for you, and, and, and a lot of them are like, hey, thanks. I really need it. I appreciate it. One of them sent back and said, man, Thank you so much for doing that. Here's the challenges that I'm going through. Here's some specific ways you can pray. And he said, now, how can I pray for you and for your church? It's all, it's all about having the perspective that Paul had. And you see, he goes on and he says that we're supposed to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul dealt with this. Paul dealt with, in fact, real quick, let's flip back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16, we'll wrap up with this. We've got to get through this pretty quickly. But Acts 16, verse 11, this is when Paul first goes to Philippi. The book of Acts is the history of the early church. And Paul's on this missionary journey. It says, so setting out from Troas, he made direct contact 
to Samothrace and following day to Neapolis. And from there, it says he went to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia. So this is happening while he's in Philippi. If we skip down to verse 16, it says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of, of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So there's a girl who was owned by a, a group of people who, who practiced like reading tarot cards and different things like that, pra- practiced the sorcery stuff. And, and it says that she, they came upon her and the owners were making a bunch of money from her. And so she followed Paul and she was crying out as they're following Paul, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days, Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit. So she's literally just following Paul around. And Paul's trying to do ministry. And this girl is just walking around for days saying, these men are the servants of the highest God who proclaim you the way of salvation. And Paul's trying to do work and this girl's just following them around saying, these men are servants of the most high God. They proclaim you the way of salvation. And she keeps saying these things over and over for days. Now, if you can imagine going to your work and having a complete stranger follow you around for days, just yelling the same thing over and over and over again. So when it says here, the Paul having become greatly annoyed, we all identify. Like, that would be incredibly frustrating. This girl just, like, literally, she won't shut up. I'm, try- not, I'm not trying to be mean. This girl won't shut up. She keeps saying the same thing over and over. So it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, we can all understand that, turned to her and said to the spirit that was inside of her, to the demon that was inside of her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now it says about this. When her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone. The spirit was no longer in here. So their means of using her to, to achieve monetary gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It was fine for them to use this girl. It was fine for her to practice what she was practicing, but it wasn't fine for Paul to stop it. So they come in and said, listen, as Romans, it's not acceptable what they did. So the crowd joins in. This is in Philippi. The crowd joins in attacking them. And the magistrates tear off their garments and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, having uh, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Paul says, I know what it's like. I've been in your city, and I've had opponents in your city. In fact, I tried to do the right thing. I tried to help this girl out and remove the demon spirit that was inside of her. And because of that, my, my clothes were torn off. I was beaten, and I was thrown in jail. By the way, the jailer that fastens him in stocks becomes one of the first believers in the city of Philippi. God starts to use the outcasts and the rejects and and the people that nobody else thought could be reached to make this incredible difference. So 12 years later, when Paul writes to the church, and he says these things, not to be frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation. He says, I want you to be bold. I want there to be unity behind the vision that you're trying to cast. And as you do the vision, realize that you're going to have opponents. You're going to have people that rise up against you that aren't necessarily going to care what it is that you're doing. But he says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but that you're also going to suffer. You're going to have people rise up that don't like what you're doing. And he says, that's okay because you'll be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. Before, 12 years ago, when I was there, you saw what happened. I was jailed there in Philippi. But also that you hear that I still have now. He says, I want you to be bold. Now, we live in a starkly different time. We can go out and talk to our friends at work or our friends at school or our friends in the neighborhood, and we can, we can share our faith, and we can have boldness about that. And chances are you and I are probably not at this point going to be thrown in jail for that. But they're working together because they said, we believe this is our vision. To walk worthy of the manner of the gospel of Jesus. And that as we do that, we do that together. And here's the vision, here's what we're trying to accomplish. And if we do that, if we have the vision, and we combine that with unity, we start to have progress towards that vision. Let's pray together. God, first of all, I thank you for the example of men and women like we encounter in the book of Philippi. People like Paul who said, man, I want to do whatever it takes to reach as many people as I can. God, I believe that our prayer right now should be to have that level of boldness. To say that we need to do whatever we need to do to reach as many people as possible because this world is longing for real hope, authentic hope. And what the world has offered to the people of this world is this, this false hope. This hope that we pursue for a minute and then it's gone and we keep wanting more. God, our substance is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. God, I pray for those who've already made that decision, already have that confirmation in their life. That our lives would be about having a vision to reach as many people as possible and having a unity around that vision. And if we have those two things and then we have progress towards carrying out the task that Jesus has for us. God, I pray we have both of those things, vision and unity. And God, for the person this morning who doesn't know Jesus, I pray that because we lift up the name Jesus, because earlier we sang a song that said, Jesus, Jesus, that your name alone makes the darkness tremble. God, for those who are going through rough spots in life, for those who say, man, I don't see where my hope is coming from, but I'm here today with a bunch of questions. God, I pray that today they find and discover that our salvation is not found in the good things that we do. And our salvation isn't lost because of the bad things that we do. But that God, today, because of the name of Jesus, because of what he's done and completed, that it's him and in him we find hope and it's in him that we find our salvation. So God, for the person today who doesn't know Jesus, I pray today is the day they discover that salvation and freedom is found only in his name. And it's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.